thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. We have a little different format today, which you'll see in a few minutes, but uh, today we're continuing our series, Missions Conference 2021, and again, I want to remind you that by request, I was asked by the Missions Committee to talk about sort of the social justice movement and critical theory behind much of that movement and how it's impacting our culture and our world and the effectiveness of the gospel. So today I've entitled our message, The Gospel, the Social Justice Movement, and Human Sexuality. Uh, Just so you know, we normally don't have blast on this weekend, but because this is a PG-13 sermon, uh, if you have somebody and you're wondering, hey, should they hear this or not, uh, this is your chance to get them out of here so that I can avoid the angry email this week. Of course, as you know, all angry emails are to go to Mackey at bethanychapel.com. So last week, and I would encourage you, if you didn't hear last week's sermon, to go and look at that online because Last week we looked at sort of the the broader issues of what's going on in critical theory and the social justice movement, and so it was more of an introduction. It was much more 10,000 foot today, and we talked about race a little bit last week and what's going on there, and um, today we're going to focus more on human sexuality, which is a big part of this movement. I want to begin by sharing a story with you. Here's the most common question from visitors to Egyptian art galleries around the world. Why are the statue's noses broken? Edward Bleiberg, who oversees the museum's Egyptian art, and uh, he says he was surprised the first few times he heard this question. He had taken for granted that the sculptures were damaged. Certainly after thousands of years, an ancient artifact should show wear and tear, but the broken noses led Bleiberg to discover a widespread pattern of deliberate destruction. He noted the consistency of the patterns of damage found in sculpture suggests that it's purposeful. These noses have been broken on purpose. A protruding nose on a three-dimensional statue is easily broken, he conceded, but the plot thickens when flat reliefs also have smashed noses. The ancient Egyptians believed that the essence of a deity could inhabit an image of that deity, that idols had power. These campaigns of vandalism were therefore intended to deactivate the image's strength, to take away the strength of the god by damaging the idol. The damaged part of the body is no longer able to do its job. Without a nose, the spirit statue or the statue's spirit ceases to breathe, so the vandal is effectively killing the god by breaking its nose. To hammer the ears off of a statue of a god would make it unable to hear a prayer. Pharaohs regularly issued decrees with terrible punishments for anyone who would dare to threaten their likeness in a statue. Bleiberg noted the skill evidenced by the iconoclasts. They were not vandals recklessly and randomly striking out works of art. In fact, the targeted precision of their chisels suggests that they were skilled laborers trained and hired for that exact purpose, to take away the power of those gods. I'm concerned that in light of the topic we're discussing, that the God of the gospel and the gospel itself are facing a similar fate today in our culture. God is under attack. The gospel 
is under attack and being rewritten in ways that I haven't experienced in my lifetime. 50 years ago, in the Western world, a person's response to the historic gospel was largely based on a few simple factors. What did the Bible say? Because most of Western society accepted the Bible. They respected it. It doesn't mean everyone was a Christian, but most people respected the Bible. They respected the culture it came from, and most people accepted it as true. And so if you could convince people that the Bible said certain things about Jesus and the way you'd get into a relationship with God through Christ was, was represented there, people would often say yes to Jesus. You might also have to discuss whether Christianity was superior to other potential truth, truth claims or sources, other religions, and it wasn't that hard to prove 50 years ago. Today, the gospel faces far greater scrutiny. The Bible gives us Jesus, who seems like a great guy, maybe even God, but the Bible seems so out of date on a lot of current themes. I mean, when it comes to human sexuality, it's binary on gender. You only have two choices, male and female. And even in the creation story, God seems to limit everything to male and female. It's exclusively heterosexual in its moral code. Anything, any sexual expression outside of a man and woman in marriage is deemed to be inappropriate or sinful. Marriage in the Bible is for straight people. So if you're growing up in today's culture, it doesn't matter how much I like Jesus seems like I have three choices. I can follow the Jesus of the Bible with all of its seemingly intolerant and out-of-date views and somehow separate Jesus from the rest of that, or I can follow Jesus but reject the rest of the Bible, sort of be a red-letter Christian, say, you know what, I like the Bible, I like Jesus, I don't really trust anything else, so I'm sort of going to reject the Old Testament, other elements of the Bible, or I'm going to reject Jesus altogether because he seems to be tied to the rest of the Bible in some unique ways. Number two is becoming quite popular. It's in vogue with younger Christians in particular. I'm gonna to try to follow Jesus, but I'm gonna recognize the rest of the scripture can't really be trusted. And the question is, is that really even Christianity? The dilemma faced here is largely because of critical theory and its influence in the social justice movement. I want to welcome my guest this morning, Jojo Ruba. Would you please welcome him with me? And Jojo is a friend of mine. I got to know him through a ministry he works with. And uh, I just want him to share a little bit about his story and then his work today and how it relates to our topic. Well, good morning, everyone. It is a privilege to be here. And thank you. Pastor Paul, for inviting me. Uh, I'm actually a pastor's kid, and I don't know if you know, but pastor's kids are either really, really good or really, really evil, and I, I just haven't decided which one I want to be yet. Uh, when I was in a university, in fact, I moved to Ottawa to study journalism and political science, it was because I didn't really want to do ministry. I thought I could serve God in the area of politics and in communication. And I joined a Christian club there and started leading a, a small group. But, but then I realized, as a lot of people do when they're part of a small group, that uh, you're starting to feel attracted to someone in that group. But my problem was the group I was leading was a men's group. And I didn't know how to handle those attractions or feelings. As a Christian, I knew what I believed on sexuality, and I didn't want to act on it, and really needed support and help. 
So I asked the leader of the group for a, a phone number for a local Christian counselor, and I started seeing this counselor. What was important was the counselor helped me realize that I may not be able to change these attractions right away, and it might take a very long time. But at the very least, this counselor could pray for me, that I could get help uh, maintaining a biblical view and, and behaving the way I wanted to, that I believe God told me to. And I've been celibate and following God's plan ever since. And, and I thought I would never have to share that story publicly with anyone, let alone at a church service like this. Uh, but recently here in Calgary, within the last year or so, the city of Calgary actually banned or, uh, a counseling that I received under what they call conversion therapy ban. Unfortunately, how they define conversion therapy is so broad, even consenting adults like myself, who my parents didn't even know I got through the counseling, would not be allowed to get this kind of support because they define conversion therapy to include even simply getting help to reduce non-heterosexual behavior. And it's unlike any medical or political definition anywhere in the world. And now the federal government wants to pass a similar ban, but in this case, it would be criminal. You could actually go to jail for simply uh, giving a phone number for a local Christian counselor to someone like me. So thank you, Georgia, for sharing that. And I want to back up for just a second to explain how we got to this point where it is illegal for me or anybody else to have somebody come into my office who might be confused about their sexuality and to talk them out of sexual behavior at some level, even if they want the help. And it is connected to this movement that's going on around the world called the social justice movement and particularly critical theory. Now I wanna review what we talked about last week, so just hold that thought because we're gonna come back to this and you'll see the connection. We're gonna look at what biblical justice involves because we talked about this last week. So this is a little review. Biblical justice involves conforming to God's moral standards. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, that includes God's moral standards about everything. So the sexuality laws, the civil laws, how we treat each other, it's all in there. The Old Testament was a theocracy. God was the king. And so all rules about all of life are included there. Second, giving others just treatment is God's image bearers. The reason we treat others well, the reason we want to be just, is because everyone's made in God's image. And third, where justice comes into this, where we mete out justice, is impartially rendering judgment, righting wrongs, meeting out punishment for wrongdoing. And so we believe as Christians, we have authorities at the home, parents, church, Christian leaders, elders, and the state, governing authorities. The Bible talks about all those. Now remember, we said last week that righteous standards and justice issues are the same word in the Bible. There are not two different words for that. When you get to the New Testament, it's a, it's a word dikaios and a few different cognates, but righteous standards and justice are the same idea. So you can't have justice without connecting it to the righteous standards that God has created. So whatever you believe about justice, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be a, a person of the book. We care about the Bible. So our justice should be based on God's view of justice. Can't be divorced from a right standard. Again, a little review, the social justice movement has roots in ideological critical theory. So I don't want you to be critical of the social justice movement, I want you to think about critical theory because that's where the critique should come in. A lot of people are involved in the social justice movement, they got a big heart, they wanna make a difference. It's the critical theory issue, it's sort of the poison tree, if you will. 
It has roots in ideological critical theory. Now, this started in about the 1920s, and this started in Europe, I believe in Germany. A lot of bad ideas came out of Germany, and my last name is German, but a lot of bad ideas came out of Germany that have impacted the church over the last hundred years. And this was a group of people, they, they had affinity to Marxism. I'm not saying everyone in this movement is a Marxist, I'm just saying that's where it started. And they were sort of frustrated that Marxist philosophy was not sort of taking over the country fast enough. So they developed this theory that divides humanity between oppressed groups and oppressors. And this would extend to race, class, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, physical ability, age, weight, etc. Today it's applied that way. And it wants to liberate all of those groups and potentially redistribute power and resources. Now, here's the key. Critical theory, and this is just a quote, it's my quote, I put this together from the other ideas, but critical theory believes that any dominant group, now, when you think about dominant groups, okay, what are the dominant groups in the Western world, because this is where this is all taking place, the dominant groups would be Christian, white, male, heterosexual. So you're automatically in that group because that's the dominant group. It's the group that's setting society's norms over the last couple hundred years. So critical theory believes that any dominant group becomes an oppressor by imposing its views on the rest of society. Now, I'm not talking about imposing its views like a theocracy, like you're putting everything in, in legal terms. They believe that just by virtue of you being in that group and that group sort of constructing society's norms, you've automatically, you're in the dominant group and you've become an oppressor. Dominant groups set norms. Dominant groups are oppressors by their very existence without actual discriminatory acts. So this is, this is a key, we talked about this last week, where the rule of law doesn't seem to matter. You're sort of guilty just because you're in a group, and that really is the philosophy. You're automatically guilty if you're a Christian, if you're a male versus females, if you're a Christian versus other groups, if you're heterosexual versus the other groups, if, you're, if your sexual orientation is cisgender, you believe that your gender and your, your, the parts on your body are to match, you're automatically an oppressor. So the reality is, and by the way, I hit all of the check marks in case you're wondering, but the reality is this, and here is a key. These are not seven or eight different sort of disparate, separate groups that are all floundering on their own. They're absolutely joined at the hip, academically and philosophically. And I want to give you an example of that. A couple of years ago, um, based on some of the things that were happening just south of the border, uh, and I know you guys do hear about some things that happen south of the border here in Canada. Sorry, that was a joke. Uh, but, you know, there were some things going on south of the border. There were some race issues. There were riots and so on. And I have relatives. You know, I've got four kids and spouses and so on. I have relatives who participated in some of those, you know, Black Lives Matter uh, parades, movements, whatever, in some cities in the U.S. And, and I talked to some of you here about that because there were people who were very concerned about some of those rallies. And one of the reasons people were concerned is they went to the Black Lives Matter website. And you'll see on the website exactly what I'm talking about, that it wasn't just about race. That on the Black Lives Matter website, there were a lot of information about sort of, the, sort of the destruction of the traditional family or different views of sexuality. And if you just cared about race issues, you'd look at that website, you'd be confused, like, why are they talking about this? It's because all of these seven or eight movements expect the support of each other in the social justice movement. There's a U.S. Congresswoman named Ayanna Presley. I did not vote for her. 
and this is a quote, and it talks about this. We don't need any more brown faces that don't want to be a brown voice. We don't need black faces that don't want to be a black voice. We don't need Muslims that don't want to be a Muslim voice. We don't need queers that don't want to be a queer voice. And her point is this, if you're in an oppressed group, we need everybody on board with all of these oppressed groups fighting for justice or their view of justice. So, independent voices are not welcome. Jojo's voice is not welcome in a community he would normally be associated with because he disagrees. If you're a black person who's made it on your own without being a part of this movement in, in the Western world and you speak out that way about individualism, that voice is not welcome. That voice will be ridiculed. The movement is powerful. The movement is philosophically united and it's not coming, it's here. So critical theory views all other categories outside of heterosexuals as oppressed. Christianity is an oppressor by its moral standards. So we're talking about sexuality today. We're going to hone in on that now. Christianity is an oppressor because we present the Bible with its historic standards about human sexuality. Now that's a problem for God. I'm not saying God's worried, but it's a problem for our view of God in the culture, and it's a problem for the Bible because they would believe God is not giving us our best path. He's actually in the way, God is part of the problem. And so in our remaining time, I wanna walk through how this movement is affecting five areas of our lives. When Jojo and I were practicing this week for this, we found very quickly that we could go down a thousand rabbit holes. This is a massive topic. So we thought we're gonna divide this up into five areas, how it's affecting the Bible, people's view of the Bible, the church, society, families, and how we reach our society. So on the Bible. So Jojo, how can Christians be championing this movement and reading their Bibles at the same time? Talk to me about what's going on there. You can throw in a few words like deconstructionism, revisionism, that sort of thing. Yeah, no, sounds good. I, you know, one of the, the key things for me when I was struggling and, and realized that I had these struggles was I realized I had those options you mentioned earlier, Pastor Paul, that I could accept the Bible despite of the fact it's intolerant. I can change the Bible so it's something that I would accommodate what I wanted to do or I could reject the Bible altogether. And I realized actually there was a fourth option which was I could look at the Bible and trust that all of God's commands are still good for me, even if I don't like them. Because there's lots of things in the Bible I don't like. It doesn't mean it's not true. But I, I realize as well that because it's true, it's good because it's made by a good God. Uh, the problem is for the, these folks who are reading the Bible this way, they do the opposite of that. What they do is they, they say, you know, God is loving, my God is good, and therefore I'm going to impose my understanding of love and good onto the Bible and read it through that lens. And that's why we call it revisionism or deconstruction, because now it doesn't matter what the author actually said. It matters what I think the author said and how I feel about it. And once you go down that pathway, what you're actually doing is creating Jesus in your own image, not the other way around. And one of the reasons why I'm here on the stage and not somewhere else is because I realize Jesus' commands are always good, even those commands on sexuality that I don't like. And when I realize that, I realize there's no way I can give that up. It's something worth believing in and sharing with other people. Well, and I also want to point out, and this was kind of popular for a while, you don't hear the words emergent church as much, but it's the same group of people coming back through these other venues today. 
But when people want to follow Jesus, you might have heard you know, 20 years ago about red-letter Christians. It's the same group, basically. But when people want to follow Jesus, but they really struggled with the rest of the Bible, they said, well, I'm just a red-letter Christian. I just care about the words of Jesus. Here's the problem with Jesus. Well, there's many problems if you're taking that perspective. And I mean this respectfully. Many problems with Jesus. The lightning might hit you too. But here, here, here it is. Jesus said he was here to fulfill the law and the prophets. Jesus never corrected the moral code of the Old Testament. He talked about how the spirit of the law was missing in our lives, but he never corrected the letter of the law. He was 100% behind it. Jesus talked about men and women. Jesus talked about male and female marriage. Jesus talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus talked about a lot of very unpopular things if you're trying to create this new sort of sexual identity revolution. So I don't know how you can really hang on to Jesus and, and, and believe that he was separate from the rest of scripture, separate from its other moral views. You really need to reject Jesus if you're gonna be consistent. I'm not recommending that, I'm saying it really is the only consistent thing to do. I wanna go down just one other issue because gender identity I think is gonna be a problematic. So let's say that we, we now are accepting that gender identity is fluid. I don't accept that, but let's say we are, where I can identify however I want to regardless of the parts that I have on my body. If I wanna say that, okay, I am gonna identify as a woman and I'm attracted to another man, but I'm identifying as a woman, that should not be considered a homosexual relationship. It shouldn't be outside of the boundaries of God's law. That's a problem because the Bible clearly says that's outside of God's moral code. But if we allow identity to be fluid and somebody's identifying as a man and another person's identifying as a woman, but they're both actually male biologically, we're destroying basically the moral code and the idea of sexual sin. And also, and, and I know nobody wants to hear this, I think that the sexual sin issue in the Bible is, is that God even indicates it might be more serious for us than other sins are. In 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul talks about men not joining themselves to prostitutes in a pagan temple, he says, every other sin is outside your body, but when you sin sexually, you're sinning against your own body. And I find it interesting when Adam and Eve sinned in the, in the, in the garden, they, they didn't cover their faces, they didn't cover their mouths, and their sins were basically in the heart, and they said stuff. They covered their sexual parts. Don't you find that interesting, the connection between our souls and our human sexuality, and shame when we sin? And I don't know how to explain all of that, but there is something different about human sexuality. So you went to a conference. Tell me about that story. Uh, at the and conference. Every part of us needing redemption, yeah. Oh, right, yeah. No, well, one of the, the things I did as part of my research as I've been looking at the theology behind this is I attended the largest gay Christian conference in Chicago in 2019. And the reason why I did that, it was the theme of the conference was called Love Undivided. And it was an interesting conference because there was about like 2,500 people there and, and me, and I wasn't going to be there debating everybody, right? But, but I, I listened intently because I really wanted to hear how they defined the word love and what that looked like. And as I, I listened to the, the conference, I realized no, none of the speakers actually defined the term love. Instead, what they said was we ought to love someone, and if we do love someone, we have to love everything that person says or does. In fact, I, I listened to one speaker, and she, was a, she said she was a, a lesbian bishop from a de denomination. And, and she said, you know, I'm glad to celebrate my identity because my identity in Christ and my lesbianism is equally valuable to God. 
And I realized at that point that no one in the, at the conference spoke about how the fall affected their sexuality. They assumed the fall affected everything about us except our sexualities was untouched, was pristine. And, and I realized this is not just an unbiblical view. This is actually contrary to the biblical view of Scripture and to understand our nature as human beings. That's, I think, the heart of the issue is that we are defining goodness and identity based on our understanding instead of how God views us. And you don't have to just be in that movement to recognize that. And I think that, frankly, just... I think our sexuality might be, in some ways, the hardest part of our fallenness for most of us to manage. I think it's a huge issue. And the Bible talks, and we talked about this the other day, self-denial in all of our lives. This is not just about LGBTQ. The reality is we all can't do things that our impulses would cause us to do. We all are to restrain those, and that's a major part of being a Christian. So I wanna move from that to the church. And I'm gonna give you a secular study here, so this isn't gonna to relate to the church right away. You're gonna wonder why I'm giving you this study, but just be patient, which I know you are. A shocking new poll claims that 30% of American women, now I'm assuming that when these studies are done in America, the canon is gonna be similar, okay? A shocking new poll claims that 30% of American women under 25 identify as homosexual, bisexual, or transgender. Okay, that's three in 10. There's a continuing of singledom, a preference for non-married life among young women in the U.S. Neither the societal shift away from traditional gender roles nor the downstream cultural consequences of that shift are anywhere near complete. In other words, this is just getting traction. Beginning in 2009, for the first time in history, there were more unmarried women in the U.S. than married ones. Now remember, this isn't a Christian study, so people are being sexually active in general and people are eschewing marriage. Rod Dreher writes, we have become a society that no longer values the natural family. Now we have 30% of Gen Z women claiming to be sexually uninterested in men. There's nothing remotely normal about that number. It is a sign of a deeply decadent culture that is a culture that lacks the wherewithal to survive. The most important thing that a generation can do is produce the next generation. No families, no children, no future. Andrew Sullivan, a popular mainstream political and societal commentator who is homosexual, he identifies as homosexual, isn't buying the stats. So he says it's not quite that bad. So it's sort of cool to be a part of that survey, but he says not everyone's living that way. He says they're way out of line suggestive to uh, openness to female sexual fluidity. So that's what's going on. He says wild guess it's 25% bi, meaning female sexual fluidity, 3% exclusively lesbian, almost 2% trendy trans, about one-tenth of 1% actually trans. Now that's society, but up to three in 10 women now saying, which by the way destroys the argument that this is just nature because all the surveys before this were saying one to 2% of the population. Now it's popping to 30, so something just happened in the human family and just in the US because this isn't what you'd find in most countries around the world. What about the church? Newsweek, within the last two months, Paul Bond writes, nearly 40% of U.S. Gen Zs identify as LGBTQ and 30% of young Christians identify as LGBTQ. So that's the church. Very different, or I should say very little difference between the world's culture and the church culture. So, Jojo, what's happened? 
Well, you know, even personally, uh, I've never shared this story publicly until the public hearing in Calgary, and I realized I had to do that because this conversation has to be something we have publicly as well as in the church. And, and I, I thought, and I struggled for a long time because I thought, you know, the, if, if I share this, people will only see me as this person with these attractions. And, and I had to realize, you know, it's, these attractions are something that I have. It is not something that I am. And it's what God has defined that's important. But in our culture, we don't talk that way. We categorize people based on sexual attractions and identity. And this was actually also started in Germany in 1860s. Prior to that, for example, the word heterosexual actually referenced people who are promiscuous with the opposite sex. So we created these sexual categories and told young people, if you have any kind of attraction in any kind of way, you must not be heterosexual. I even remember a story of a pastor who had a dream of, of a sexual nature with another man, and he woke up in just terror that he must now be gay because he had this one dream. And when you live in a culture where, the, where you're so lonely, this is the loneliest generation as well ever, even though we have access to the social media and you're craving community, here's a community being celebrated by culture and saying, you can be part of this culture, you can find this intimacy with us, and we'll provide a community for you. And it's no wonder that it becomes attractive for young people who are lonely, that they can now be part of something bigger. Well, I like what you're talking about there, Jojo, because we interpret every little thing as a sign of sexuality, like, you know, two little girls holding hands on the playground and they're six years old. What does that mean? Absolutely nothing. That they're friends. But not today. And so then we, we sort of interpret things into their lives, may tell them things that aren't true and actually create confusion. So it's safe to say now that it is in the church and we have some choices. So in the church, Jojo, looking at the church, and this is a little depressing obviously, and, uh, but looking at the church, the question we have is, as churches and as the church of Jesus Christ is, do we view this as an issue of doctrinal purity and there's no compromise or do we prioritize sort of the issue of unity and we can all be in a big tent sort of just talking this out or not talking this out? Uh, Jojo, talk to me about that. Yeah, we have a line at Faith Beyond Belief that we like to say, which is that unity without orthodoxy is not Christianity. In other words, we can be unified in all kinds of ways for political reasons, for business reasons, but we're not allowed to be unified theologically with just anybody. Otherwise, it's a different kind of religion we're, we're worshiping. So uh, you can ask me later, but I actually ended up accidentally at a LGBT uh, protest against a Christian school. I wasn't expecting that. But when I showed up, I heard one of the speakers. You end up at a lot of interesting I, events, I, I, Jojo. You know, don't know the half of it, Pastor Paul. <laughs> uh, I, I remember hearing one of the speakers, and she actually was a, identified as a gay Christian. And, and she said, you know, it's pretty obvious that our view of Jesus is different from the view of Jesus that this school has. And it's clear that we're worshiping a different Jesus. And I, I completely agree. I think that's part of the challenge we have as the church, in fact, is that this is an alternative community that, that has been created as one that we can change to and leave this kind of church where it's not as welcoming, it's not as, you know, all the, the, thing, the, the, the rules that the uh, social justice group people say. And, and my response to that is, well, well, look, it's not that we can't be welcoming. It's that we're a church because we welcome Jesus first. 
And that means we have to follow, as, as he said in the Great Commission, everything Jesus says. And then when we do that, we unify around those teachings, not what we hope those teachings are. Mm-hmm. And, and at the end of the day, that's the challenge I would hope that we ha- take as a church, which is are we willing to provide a better community than what the culture offers? Because if we don't explain to them that true intimacy, true love starts with Christ, then they're going to embrace this worldview because they've no, heard no other alternative from us. You know, there's actually a term for this in history, and I don't know if you've thought of this, we didn't talk about this, but it's called syncretism. In the Old Testament, the people of God believed that God was sort of like the God of war, but Baal was sort of the god of the land. And so they thought, if we want our crops to grow, we're gonna syncretize the Baal cult, which involved all sorts of sexual deviancy, and we're gonna worship God, because he's the God who's helped us in our battles. And they syncretized the two, and they thought they could do that. And God was not really happy with that, as the Old Testament would indicate. But it's, that, it's really an attempt to do that. We're gonna still maintain some loyalty to Jesus, or the idea of Jesus, but we're gonna syncretize sort of the world's view of human sexuality. So I know some of us don't wanna believe, you know, you know you know, you, some people, you know, are very conspiratorial. You tell them a conspiracy theory and they're like, oh yeah, I believe anything, you know, and other people are like, yeah, I don't believe, you know, they're very skeptical. Well, I just want you to know how insidious and aggressive this is. Tell me about a conference that took place in Calgary within the last couple of years. Yeah, so this was about five years ago or so. I attended this conference, so this is a firsthand knowledge of a, a gay Christian network that's in Canada, and they actually trained us over two days to how to infiltrate churches and Christian schools to adopt their uh, revisionist, is what I call it, theology, to reinterpret the Bible. They would even teach pastors and how they can reintroduce this theology or introduce this theology to their church, even if there might be some biblical resistance to it. So this is organized, this is thought through, and this is something that's happening as we speak in churches across Calgary, as well as Christian schools. All right, so we want to move on to society. How are we affecting society? So let's talk about that, an arena that doesn't have any loyalty to the Bible. So in the church, you know, we can battle about Jesus, we can battle about the Old Testament, we can have all these discussions we want to. When you get out in the political world, you're talking about politicians, the legal landscape, you know, the idea of discrimination and discrimination in hiring and so on, professional group litmus tests. Let's talk about that. What's going on out there? What do you see in that part of the world? That's kind of where you're operating a little bit. Yeah, yeah. When you put sexuality as a category of humanity and then you talk about social justice, then clearly you cannot discriminate against someone because of their sexual identity. That's the argument. So any kind of discrimination where you would say homosexuality, for example, is wrong, is now seen as an attack against the person rather than against the behavior. So I was, I was helping recently a friend of mine who works here in Alberta, and he works for a private company that, he, that uh, was putting on this committee, this uh, basically diversity committee, and they were in trying to impose that everyone ought to use the pronouns, the self-chosen pronouns of their staff. So when he joined this committee, he asked me, so what should I do? How do I help educate them about this? And I said, well, rather than talking about the pronouns, talk about the simple truth that we've forgotten that we can still disagree on important issues and still be friends. And, and that simple truth is something he had to educate his colleagues on. And thankfully, they were open to it, and they revised their policies. It was no longer mandated. It was still encouraged. But his work on that diversity community really shows that we as Christians have to be well aware that simply opposing sexual behavior or following Christ's teaching on behavior is now seen as a personal attack against people. And, and in fact, criminal. 
So we have to be very wary of that, very wise about that, and here's the point, be prepared for that. Whether in your public workplace as a teacher, a doctor, a nurse, you have to be aware now and make those decisions now of what you're going to do. Are you going to be loyal to what God has taught, which is good, or are you going to capitulate to culture? And we're going to run into this, particularly, I think, if you're going into some sort of profession related to the law or medicine, where you kind of have to sign off on a litmus test that agrees with all this stuff, or you're going to have a hard time professionally entering uh, certain arenas in society. One of the things that might be relevant to churches is, and I just had one of you sent me a, an email this week, and this was a pro-abortion uh, group talking about taking away tax-exempt status from churches if they don't agree with a pro-choice or pro-abortion mandate. So. Um, talk to me about that, Jojo, because with churches, a lot of it relates to discriminatory nature of hiring. In other words, we want to hire a pastor. He, he doesn't agree with us on human sexuality. That would be discrimination in other contexts, but in the church, we believe that's an issue. Yeah, no, it's, isn't it ironic to be pro-choice and then tell people what they ought to choose, right? That's, the, that's just crazy. But, but I think at the end of the day, we still have a fundamental right, which is the right to hire and fire people based on their beliefs. And I think it's you, important. You mean in the church? In the church, yeah. yes. So if you're trying to hire someone or if you're a youth volunteer or something like that, it's perfectly legally sound still, at least, to make sure that person agrees with what we believe. And if they no longer believe what we do or change their mind or don't agree, then we can ask them to, to go away. I mean, LGBT organizations also have this. The Pride Parade here in Calgary has their own statement of faith. You have to agree with their beliefs in order to march in their parade. And you know, you know what? They have a right to do that. That's great. That's called freedom of association. We still have that right. But here's the underlying um, uh, truth behind that then. We need to know what we believe. We need to make sure everyone knows what we believe. And we need to know why we believe is good. And if you don't have that, then your organization, your church will be in trouble. I, I remember just a quick story. I talked to one of the, a principal of one of the largest Christian schools here in Alberta. And, and this was with a time when the government was trying to force gay-straight alliances onto schools. And, and if you don't know, these gay-straight alliances are actually advocacy organizations, political organizations, trying to indoctrinate students. One, one school actually hosted a United Church pastor that was teaching public schools that the kids that the Bible does not oppose homosexuality. I don't think he's, it's his right to tell theology to these students. But at this point, the, the government forced this Christian school to have a gay-straight alliance. And the principal did not know until the school was forced to have this club that half of his teachers had already agreed to that view because they never asked when they hired them. And only after the fact did they have to deal with the issue. So it's really wisdom to, to be on top of this issue now, and I'm glad we're having this conversation because this is the kind of stuff that's happening all across the country. Well, we're going to have to speed along here. I am never late with sermon timing. <laughs> of course. Yeah, so uh, this is affecting families now. When you take a 30% number and you layer it across the U.S. population, and I'm assuming the U.S. is going to be similar to Canada, that survey was done there, a little larger country, but it's going to be similar. We're both increasingly secular societies. When you take that and spread it across the country and you saw the application in the church as well, the reality is it means it's in our lives, it's in our families, whether actively or philosophically. And so, Jojo, how do you talk to families, parents, grandparents who are really dealing with this issue and it's really a surprise to them? They didn't see this coming 10 years ago or 15 years ago and now their world is really being turned upside down by some of this. 
Yeah, and, and to keep it short, I, I think it's, it's important for us to realize that the Bible says there's no temptation that's not uncommon to mankind. And so if you're struggling with this, please know you're not alone. This is something that we have struggled as humanity in terms of sexual brokenness since the fall. And, and that's one of the freeing things for me as well to realize this is not new and God is not surprised. You know, I, I get a chance to speak to young people's parents and teachers all the time. And often my first piece of advice to them is take time to grieve. It's okay to feel a loss because of all these expectations that you've had for your child and now all of a sudden your culture is saying you have to throw those out. At the same time, don't panic. I think when it comes to this, we have bought into this idea wholeheartedly in the church that sexuality is your immutable category for the rest of your life. And, and I hope as you've heard me speak, you can realize you don't have to see someone through a sexual category. I think that's one of the most important uh, problems, in fact, with the social justice movement, because you always see people through a category, not as a person. So see your child as a person. As I said earlier, see your child, see your student or whoever you're speaking to as someone who has these attractions or feelings, not as someone who is that. And when you start there, you realize that's how God sees us. But he doesn't categorize us through sexuality or any of these other things. That's why Paul said, uh, not Pastor Paul, but the Paul in the Bible, that there is no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no male, there's no female. Not that those things disappear, but that all of those identities are secondary to our identity in Christ. And if this is happening in your family, start there. I recently talked to a young man. He, he became sexually confused partly because his counts, guidance counselor at school when he was around 10 years old told him, you know, it's okay for boys like you to like other boys. That's how widespread this is. And, and I, the first question I asked when he was sharing his struggles with me was, do you believe the Bible is true? And he said, yes. And, and that led to a whole different conversation than with someone who would say, no, I don't believe that. That's where you need to start. Do you trust that God's word is true and good? When it comes to outreach and evangelism, uh, we've got a mutual friend who shall remain nameless. But he sort of said, you know what, guys? You know, don't leave us without hope. I don't want to, like, go into a bunker for 30 years until Jesus comes because the world is changing so much. And, and I think sometimes that's almost our feeling as Christians, like, what is happening around us and how... How do we survive and how can the church be effective in a time where we're gonna be increasingly sort of out of touch with society will, will be the view. So is there, how, how do you frame this? How can we still reach out to people who are maybe in the LGBT community uh, and we love them, they're God's image bearers, the general population is gonna perhaps label Orthodox churches as intolerant and unloving. How do we, how do we navigate that as a church and, and bring Christianity to the next five generations? I always go, go back to uh, the life verse for our ministry, which is 2 Corinthians 5.20, where Paul writes, uh, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal directly through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And, and then the reason why I come back to that is because it's, it's a mandate we ought to take seriously. It's not an optional job. It's not like, oh, I'm not gifted to be an evangelist. No, we're always to be ambassadors for Christ 24-7. That's all of us who follow Jesus. And the message that he gives is a message of reconciliation. 
So there's no one out of God's grace that we can't reach and talk to. And I think it's critical for us, if we take that passage seriously, then we ought to take the job of an ambassador seriously, whoever we're called to, including to the LGBTQ community. That means getting ready to know what we believe, as I said, and to know why we believe is good. And when you have that, God will give you opportunities. You know, I, got a ch I get a chance to meet regularly with a transgender friend of mine, and I met him because I actually gave a talk on gender and identity at a church, and he came up to me at the end of my presentation, and he said, I disagree with everything you just said. I said, great, let's have coffee. And he said, sure. So we've been meeting regularly ever since. The only reason why we stopped is probably COVID. And, and I remember having all kinds of biblical discussions with him. He claims to be a Christian. He's studying at a Bible college. And it's a great opportunity to convey that we can be friends and still disagree on this issue. And, and I remember it was our second meeting, I think, at Starbucks when we had finished this conversation, good conversation. I asked, can I pray for you? And he said, sure. And so as I remember praying, and then as soon as I opened my eyes, I saw this very large, very angry-looking woman from across the restaurant stand up, and she stomped towards our table. And my first thought is, where is the exit? Because I don't think she's going to like me very much. And as she came to our table, she stared at me, she looked at me, and she said, you know, my partner is transgender, and my child is also transgender. And as she's saying this, I'm sinking on my, in my seat because I realize the only thing between me and a a punch is this empty Starbucks cup on the middle of our table. And, and, and then she said, you know, I came here because you're the first Christian I've ever seen pray with a transgender person. And I just came here to thank you for being willing to do that. And, and that broke my heart because I thought, how can I be the first one? Right? Because isn't that exactly the kind of thing Jesus would do? And so that, that's the challenge that we can give. That's the hope that we can give, that we are not scared to talk about these issues. And more importantly, we are not scared to talk to the people in these communities because they are just like us. The truest and best identity to embrace is that we are lost sinners needing reconciliation. And if we see them that way, rather than through our sexual att attraction or identity, then I think we're seeing them the way Jesus wants us to see them. Well, we're going to wrap this up, and worship team's going to come forward when I pray. But would you just thank Jojo for being with us and sharing with us today? Thank you, Jojo. Would you just uh, pray with me? God, we thank you for your goodness to us. And... Boy, this topic is becoming, I didn't realize how much I didn't know until I began to look into this. And if I'm saying that as a Christian leader, I suspect there's a lot of new information for a lot of people here who may not understand the, the tide of culture and how fast it's moving. And I just pray that you would help us to be everything that you want us to be. It's hard to even know what to pray for in this world around us but help us to be everything you want us to be. As Jojo said, ambassadors, as though God is right here sitting across from a person who needs you and we're here instead. We are in God's place as ambassadors for him. Help us to be that faithfully and lovingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect 
or go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.